want to get out of this? Why do I want to get out of this? Uh, I just, um, just always looking for cool photos. I don't really care as long as it's a unique, cool photo. I just want to chase anything that's a good story. Yeah. Like if it's intriguing or emotionally compelling at all. Yeah. I just want to like chase it down. Ben and I continued to document the cheese caves in the most pragmatic of fashions. Ben setting up his lights and snapping shots, me recording video and taking measurements. Length, width, overall temperature. It was a expeditionary force, but the entire time I did feel like there was something in the cave with us. The cave lent itself to this feeling. Massive and yawning, it felt more like the throat of a giant than a lava tube. But in fact, there was nothing down there with us. No physical entity, at least. But we were ankle-deep in the failed dreams of Homer Spencer. The 70-foot electric yellow industrial staircase that leads from the floor of the cave up to a sealed door. The old A-frame of the cheese company. A mausoleum now to a cheese company that once existed. It all serves as a reminder of Homer. It's interesting that no one knocked it down, that it was left there. Relatively untouched, I might add. The pagoda, however, that covered the access point to the cave, the one that we actually crawled inside, is covered with graffiti. Cryptic messages, sayings, little symbols of the Illuminati. All of these things sent Ben into a rage. Every time we found evidence of human existence scratched into a cave or the edifice around it, Ben would go mad. I didn't think about it until later, but it was fascinating to me that we would go so far out into wilderness and see no examples of people. But caves... Caves always had evidence. I wonder what it is about these places, deep in the earth, that draws people to them, like moths to a flame. Or is that even it? Are people content to carve their name anywhere, but only in the face of a cave does it last? A cave makes a perfect time capsule. Immune to light, to weather, and as we had discovered, even to time. There's some immortality in the yawning expanse of the earth. But I think it's more than that. I think people are drawn to these locations, as we were. There's a mystery, both physical and psychic, that draws you into a cave. That's what had originally inspired my idea for a top ten roundup. Unfortunately, at the moment, we were running out of time. We were burning daylight by the time we got out of the cheese caves, 
and we had to make a tactical decision as to which cave we were going to explore next. My wife, Tani, was very pregnant, and I needed to get back, and Ben and I were running out of time to explore. So we got back in the car, loaded up the gear, and made our next decision. We were losing daylight, and we had to decide which cave we were going to go to next. Our list was dwindling, but we had another one for sure that we wanted to hit, Gardner Cave, at the northernmost edge of Washington State. We loaded up the car and headed north. Along the way, we had to decide on a place to camp, and Ben pressed for a town called Vantage. Actually, calling Vantage a town is generous. What he was really talking about was a campsite. It's an area perched on the basalt cliffs east of the Columbia River in central Washington. It is barren, sweeping steppe land, full of mystery, a little magic, and for the night, the two of us. I think for me, having grown up in Washington State, Vantage is most iconic for its Wild Horse Monument. Originally titled Grandfather Cuts Loose the Ponies, the monument is 16 life-size horses cut from steel, erected on a ridge that overlooks the surrounding river and valley from the highest point. The 16 horses originally were supposed to be accompanied by a 35-foot steel basket tipped over, looking as if the horses were pouring out of it. Designed and built by Chihuahua artist Dave Govder, the basket never got the funding, and today only the horses adorn the ridge. But the horses pouring from the basket were supposed to be a gift from the Great Spirit, and they came with this legend attached. Creatures of this planet, behold, a great basket. I send this basket bearing the gift of life to all corners of the universe. Now, take these ponies. I am cutting them loose. They will inspire a spirit of free will. They will be a companion for work and play on this planet. It was in the shadow of these great horses that we made camp. Every single one of them is tagged with some sort of spray paint. But as the sun sets behind them, it all fades away into fire and shadow. And for just a moment, as you fade off to sleep, it looks as though the horses are running. The next morning, I woke up half frozen with my sleeping bag covered in frost, and Ben was giddy. He said that he wanted to show me something before we took off for the day. We packed up our campsite, threw it in the car, and then made the half-mile hike up the hill and around the basalt columns. Eastern Washington is truly gorgeous. Basalt is a common rock here. It also happens to be one of my favorite rocks. The long, slender columns rise up out of the earth in polygonal shapes, and they look almost artificial. 
It's the same rock you see on the giant causeway in northern Europe. Ben's path this morning had us going up over a ridge, and then there before us stretched one of the many coolies of Washington. A coulee is a ravine, a canyon, really. These particular ones were formed by the Missoula floods thousands of years ago at the end of the last ice age. An ice dam in Montana ruptured, and all of that water and ice cataclysmically flooded across northern Idaho and Washington along the Columbia River. It destroyed everything in its path. And today, the skeletal remains of that linger in the state, an echo of that destruction. Framed on both sides by sturdy bones of basalt, the coulee is an unbelievably vast expanse in the middle. This is what Ben wanted to show me. For a man who'd been mostly quiet on our trip, he now could not contain his excitement. And I had to remark upon it. Really cool, really tall basalt column all along that wall. It's crazy to me that this is like your favorite place and you never mentioned it to me. <laughs> well, it's, it's like the, the favorite place that is not like from, I don't, I mean, it definitely is, I think, really beautiful, but it's it's one of my favorites, like, not, you know, not on, like, the, a top ten list, or, like, most people you talk, that climb or whatever, they don't really care about Vantage that much. They're just like, hmm. But it's ridiculously beautiful. It is. And this clearly just goes all the way around, so it's, like, from further down, way down, it goes, like, another mile down, just rock. There's tiers, so you can climb the basalt columns, or the broken tablature, like the lower stuff. It's really cool too. For me, this finally struck home at the heart of what Ben was looking for on this expedition the whole time. Once, while we were driving, he told me that all he really wanted was to go someplace that no one had ever been before. It seems like a crazy statement to me. Because for me, I was perfectly content going to these places that 99% of the world had never been to before. Each cave that we documented was exploration for us, for we had never been there before, but also for the vast masses who had never seen it and who probably never would, except through our works. But for Ben, what he really craved was an exploration win for humanity. A little slice of the world that was just his. We lingered for a while at the coulee and made our next decision. We looked up Gardner Cave and discovered that we were unseasonable in our desire to photograph it. The cave was locked, but not the same way that the Abe Caves had a single gate over the road it was locked with an industrial gate, something that looked like it was out of Jurassic Park, spread across the entire mouth of the cave and locked down ultra-tight. Not only were we not going to get in legally, there was no chance of us exploring it on our own. 
This left two options for us. A myth and a legend. The legend is a hole. Affectionately called Mel's Hole. It's the story of a bottomless pit located on the north side of Ellensburg, Washington. The legend originally stems from a man called Mel Waters, who called in to the Coast to Coast AM show years ago and talked about a bottomless pit that he thought was 80,000 feet deep and was purported to have supernatural abilities, including blinding white light that would come out of it on the equinox and the ability that if you threw a dead animal into it, that animal would come back to life. It's an encore presentation featuring the best of Art Bell and his guest, Mel Waters, and the story of Mel's Hole, the bottomless pit in Washington State. Art will be back. I've got Mel on the line. Mel's the guy with the never-ending hole, and uh, we're going to ask him about it here in a moment. Part of the legend is that people have been throwing their trash down the hole for years. Well, the hole, the hole has always been there. We've been out there for a couple of years now, and, uh, you know, the hole has been there since we've been there. It's been there since the previous owner was there, and the previous owner there was quite elderly, and I, I'd say he was there for a good 30, 40 years before we moved in. Wow. And then... Uh, and so there's been a thing of throwing stuff down this hole for a long, oh, yeah, long it's, time. Oh, yeah, it's been, it's been going on, you know, <laughs> as, as, for as long as the hole has been there, I assume. Vantage is just outside of Ellensburg, and so it seemed only logical to me that we should go and try and find Mel's Hole. Not only because of the close proximity, but because I had found information recently that led me to believe we might be able to actually locate it where others had failed. Not to mention, it being a hole and all, it seemed like the perfect addition to our cave roundup. I won't disclose to you what information I discovered to help us find the hole because I promised that I wouldn't to our source, but Ben and I rode north of Ellensburg, following the clues and the map that we had laid out before us, and arrived at a hole in the ground. Now whether or not this is actually Mel's hole, the mythical hole that brings animals back from the dead and spans to the center of the earth, is up for debate. What's more than likely is that this is the hole that spawned the legend behind it. We approached the hole and did the first scientific thing that came to mind. I threw a rock down it to see how deep it was. Now the results of this test are greatly debated. Ben seemed to think we had stumbled across something that was inconsequential. I, however, felt that the hole had great depth. We're just going to go ahead and chuck this rock in and then give it a listen. <laughs> Not that deep. Really? <laughs> That's your estimate? I think that was fairly deep. Let's do it one more time. <laughs> The hole itself was about 8 to 10 feet in diameter, and we couldn't see the bottom of it. The entire thing is surrounded by barbed wire, 
in my mind, this was perhaps not Mel's hole, but certainly the hole that inspired the legend. Ben was not as easily convinced. I thought that it was strange that the hole would even exist. It looked like some sort of sinkhole or natural formation to me, although I had to admit it was strange that it was perfectly round. Ben thought, however, that it was just some neighborhood family digging for rocks. It is, you know, but it is definitely deep. Well, I mean, we can both agree that it's deep. Here's the weird part to me. If you were just excavating rocks out of it, why wouldn't you just dig more shallow ones? Why would you just keep going straight down? Riddle me that. Maybe there's a certain layer you have to get down to. That it's like a vein of river rock. Yes, but I feel like that would be like horizontal, wouldn't it? You'd want to like, because it's just weird that it's a straight shaft down. Yeah, it is. It just—I don't have a geology major, but it did not seem like a sinkhole. And it's just a weird hole. It's just a yeah, it's just a big ass hole. It's also weird that they would just fence it off right. instead of like attempting to fill it in. Yeah. Well, it, that'd be a big hole to fill in. I guess that's true. Maybe they're not done with it. I don't know. It's a mystery. Maybe that's where they put the bodies. <laughs> it turns out Ben wasn't the first person to think that. We had left our information with a local in the area and got a call back not long after. This was the explanation for the hole. And what this is, is a hole that's about 120-some feet deep and about 43 feet. It's down and turned. And um, there's one line guy, he's the line boss for Kittagot Tower. I think he was out here. He knew more about it. They call it the Chinaman's Hole or something like that. It was just basically, I think, board miners. Bored miners. They dug a shaft 140 feet down, and for the last undisclosed amount of years, people in the area have been throwing their trash into it. Refrigerators, appliances, all sorts of things. During the Ted Bundy years, the local sheriff even came and lowered a camera down to see if there were any bodies at the bottom. Garbage was all he found. I couldn't help but drawing parallels to our own expedition. I had come out looking for some sort of deeper meaning, literally digging into the holes of Washington State, trying to excavate some sort of story from the whole thing, and repeatedly we had found garbage. I thought back on the petroglyph, she who watches and wondered what this chief would think if she could look down at us now. Would she mark our progress as good? Or would she try and reset our course? Ben and I had one last opportunity to find out. Our final cave for the expedition. And I hesitate to call it a cave because it's technically a karst formation. According to the United States Geological Survey Group, 
The cave is a natural opening in the earth, large enough to permit the entry of a man that extends beyond the natural zone of light. A karst formation is an indentation in the basalt formations. Technically, our hole in Ellensburg wasn't a cave either, because it wasn't natural. But genuine cave or not, the karst formations of Lenore were our final stop on this journey, and ultimately the place where everything would make sense for me. As you already know, I started this whole thing wanting to inspire a sense of wonder and mystery for the state of Washington and the people around me. However, by the time we were finished with Mel's Hole, all I really wanted was to inspire that sense of mystery in Ben. We had seen some extraordinary caves at this point, tracked down some mysteries, put things on the map, but the only time I'd seen him truly excited was in the coulee outside of Vantage. There had been another time, however, when we were discussing the petroglyphs on the edge of the Columbia. There are over 160 petroglyph sites in the state of Washington, 90 of which are found on the Columbia River, and the rest are etched on basalt columns along the glacial flood path. Ben had mentioned something about it earlier, and as we were driving up to Lenore Caverns, a song came on by Dutch artist Moo. There's something in the line, a generation with no mythologies to follow, that stuck through me like an arrow. We adjusted course. There is a myth we heard. A lead, a fragment of a story. That in the Lenore area, there's a crack in the wall, in the back of the cave, that leads to a maze, a labyrinth. And in the back is a treasure, something timeless, undiscovered, powerful. We'd heard about this early on, but didn't pay much mind to it. Now, however, it became the singular focus for our journey. When we arrived to the Lenore area, we began the search based on the clues that we had heard. When we arrived at the Karst Formations, we began our exploration as we always had, tentatively, taking pictures, taking our time, combing through, looking for small details. The Lenore Karst Formations are miraculous in that they have been used for thousands of years by the First Nations people, as shelter, storage, and a gathering place. They're still considered an honored and sacred position by the tribes in the area today. At the back of one of the formations was a piece of paper, glued to the wall, symbols scrawled all over it, and a saying. Why isn't the world real enough to live in? I didn't put shit like that every <laughs> In case you missed it, Ben asked, why do people put shit like that at every cave? And it's kind of the ultimate question for this whole thing. 
Why do people put stuff like that at every cave? Whether tempered graffiti or meaningful messages, even petroglyphs, why? Why do people feel the urge to carve something into the rock? As we were combing the back of the car's formation, looking for the entrance into the labyrinth that we had heard about, I thought about that. Petroglyph and rock art specialist Grace Burkholder has a theory on why First Nations left drawings in caves and etchings on rocks that might have some reflection on why we do it today. The rock art. Why would they do that? Well, that's debatable because we can't get into their minds right. and find out. But uh, most people that share that belief think that the shamans were trying to abstract power from the rocks. If rocks and trees and all other things of that nature contained power, and that power was just a potential, why then, perhaps by putting the rock art on the rock, why they could obtain some of that power or release the power. And they used that power for, you know, the benefit of all, of all mankind. We resumed the search. Secret clue leading us to the, quote, maze, the labyrinth. So now we're trying to find a crack in the coulee wall to enter into. A lost world. We found it. At the back of the cave, there was a camouflaged passageway. If you looked at it straight on, you couldn't see it. It blended in perfectly with the vertical lines of the basalt. But moving at just the right angle, you could break the illusion and see to the other side. We passed through, and as we moved down, we descended into a coulee, a deep ravine that stretched for maybe two miles across and as far as we could see in either direction. No road led here, no path, just scree and sagebrush. As we looked, we could see the far side and there was a rock that spoke instantly to us. Neither Ben nor I could describe why, but we knew that we had to cross to the other side. All of our clues only told us how to get in and told us a little bit about the labyrinth, but not what was on the other side. From our high vantage point, it looked easily passable, and so we descended into the coulee. As we climbed down the loose rock into the coulee, what looked like flat ground suddenly became a honeycomb of passageways. Basalt plateaus loomed up 15 feet on either side of us. If we tried to climb up on top of them and make our way, they would end abruptly at a dead end, and then we would have to jump down 20 feet, sometimes into sagebrush, sometimes into standing water. Instead, we made our way in between the plateaus. It truly was a labyrinth. I don't know how long it took us to make our way through. We lost complete track of time. I do know the going was slow. We picked our way through, but we would encounter dead ends or have to double back and try and find the right route. Eventually, though, we emerged out of the labyrinth to the other side. 
Rising up before us was a 17-foot rock, a pillar, that stood out amongst all the other boulders at the foot of the coulee. Inscribed all along its side were petroglyphs. Wholly unexpectedly, I was knocked off of my feet. I had to sit down and look at it. There was a gravity to the place, some connection to being here. It was as if we were the first people to encounter it since they were first engraved. All around us, for as far as the eye could see, there was no sign that anyone had been here. No path, no road, no trash, just this singular pillar and its art. Here was something that had remained just as it was left for perhaps a thousand years. And we became instantly defensive of it. And it was going to stay that way. And there, like, it was just like the continuous flow current of time. And now, for us looking at it now, it's like, our world is going to be like a hundred percent different in like twenty years or thirty years, like, or even if it's a hundred, like it's still not thousands. Where it's like the simple, like you know, the human condition as it was. I don't want to go back, but <laughs> I do love stuff like this because it helps you remember. I don't know why I feel the need to share it though. Because I, I know, I, like in my base, I do. Like I want to share the mysteries of the world with people. But like you said, in sharing them, you kind of destroy them. You can. I think, like, sharing the part about what you said about you know, the, the ageless part of like the human condition or whatever is fine but you don't have to be like there we go and then there it was a hundred paces to the left (laughs) (laughs) latitude negative four seven dot zero two but I think about that stuff like with the places that I like to frequent that are wild and still raw and not don't get ten million visitors a year like should you be blasting that out? Because I started this whole thing with the intention of doing a comprehensive roundup of the caves of Washington State, but now I don't know. We lingered a while longer and tried to drink in the whole of the petroglyph. Something's probably been lost in the telling since when it was carved. But for me, the symbol seemed very clear. We stayed a while longer and then picked our way back through the labyrinth, slowly and deliberately, until we got to the secret entrance at the back of the cave. As we entered the cave, we wandered back. Through the years of First Nations dwellings, 
through the failed dreams of Homer Spencer, through the exploration of the Mount Rainier apes, through the ice industry, through the graffiti, and the hope, through the molten lava that shaped the earth we walk on. And when we reached the mouth of the cave again, we emerged right back where we had started. But not everything was the same. This has been Down Below. Special thanks to Tony Clark and Ben Herndon, without whom this adventure would never have happened. For more of our podcasts, listen next week. As always, I'm Captain Chris Dottinger. Thank you so much. Also, if you liked what you heard today, a review on iTunes would be very much appreciated. Until next time, keep exploring. <laughs>